Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Handmade Network podcast. Today, I'm joined again by Alan Webster, the creator of Forcoder and uh, a Rad Game Tools engineer. Uh, welcome back, Alan. Thanks for coming back on the show. Yeah. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. So um, we did a podcast. Uh, I think it was number two, episode episode two of the mm-hmm. podcast, and we were talking about Forcoder and some of the problems that you encountered in Forcoder, and overall, we just came to discuss the issues with text files as a base format for for code and yeah um to catch everybody up who's not us uh we started a project about addressing that issue and we got a i got a request to do a podcast about the teamwork of the of the um the teamwork that we've had to use to approach that project effectively because mm-hmm. handmade network is uh, full of lone wolf programmers, probably partially due to the fact that Handmade Hero is a lone wolf programming stream, uh, and right. nobody. I don't think there are any groups of people following Handmade Hero together or something. But um, mm-hmm. so it seems like the network just has a selection, uh, like a selective pressure for lone wolf programmers, and um, it was kind of interesting to approach that problem for us. So that's what this podcast is about. Uh, yeah. and we'll see what details we get into. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I'm interested to get your perspective on, like, I know how I felt going into the project as, like, somebody who normally just works on projects by myself. I don't know how you felt um, at first, especially. Yeah. So I think, you know, giving a little background might help because how I felt has to do with, you know, the like, our mutual interest in the topic and right. how the, like, the details of how the project started a little bit. So mm-hmm. uh, I was already working on a different project sort of very spare time uh, project that was already like Forkoder was already a spare time project. And then in the spare time of that spare time project, I uh, was doing Pinky, which was just my name for experimenting. I did about three or four different from scratch experiments of like, is this a way to do it? Is that a way to do it? And uh, I never really felt like I was um, very happy with the experiments I had. I felt felt like something some some part of the picture was wrong and it wasn't going to be a very helpful tool the way I was building it uh we did the podcast where I explained that you know I think that something like this will be better I didn't have any specific pitches at the time of how to do it because like I said I was not sure right um uh and so when we started working together it was because you spun up a demo within like a week of an idea of how you would do it, which was very different from what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And so initially I hadn't, I didn't really hesitate. Like there was no, um, there was no consideration for me of like, Oh, can, can I do teamwork or not? I don't know. Right. Mostly because I was excited enough about the, the project in particular. And I think, uh, like, like you said, we were all sort of, we we're all sort of, um, lone wolfers in our side projects on handmade network for the most part. And right. that included you and me were both like that. So I don't think if yeah. I had like if I had been super self conscious about that going into it, uh, it might have detracted me from wanting to do it. But in the in the first few weeks, it was more like the the project seemed so important to me, and your your demo of it seemed like such a good direction to explore that I didn't. There was no thought like the project overrided my concerns about how to organize the team at first. Right. Totally. Yeah, I think I felt pretty similarly. I think after the initial period of working on stuff, we started noticing, yeah. um, we started noticing things where 
uh, I first of all, like I was kind of hacking around because I didn't really. I mean, we it was a new idea with a new project, so mm. it wasn't even clear how to approach certain problems. Um, we've got a little bit better of a framework now for that, um, I think. Mm-hmm. But uh, there were interesting problems with. Um, like you started working on the backend stuff and in order like if you looked at a dependency tree of code you would have layers that it'd be like a dag of layers more or less yeah but it's interesting because the actual way that any of them have to get worked on is not a dag it has like cycles in it so in order yeah. to test the backend stuff you need to test or you need to use the front end stuff and see how the backend work manifests as the front end stuff um that's maybe not even clear yeah. given yeah so so I'll, I'll try to explain the same thing from the perspective i was in um yeah because what yeah what that what you're saying is true that like so the front end stuff is like um the ability to write code in this non-textual system basically right. to generate the the input to a back end mm-hmm. and then the back end is the ability to convert that into a program that runs yeah. and what you had like put together in your demo in the first week was front end stuff it was like you could render and navigate around a thing that looked like a bit of c code but that it was it was rendered differently and it it was not actually text mm-hmm. um and uh then when i joined in the first thing i wanted to do was just to get a handle on what the code base looked like uh mm-hmm. so i didn't go right in to say like oh what's a feature you need or something and try to just get in the mix of stuff you were already doing I made my own separate file that I could build independently and tried to figure out how to include stuff uh, in there where I could do like build some systems. I worked on like, oh, we don't have a built in like a hash table for strings, which I think we're going to need pretty soon. So I did that for a little while. And, you know, I was able to just work out, work out a few like basic building blocks in that separate space. I tried to build a, um, uh, a VM there. And then I started realizing that, the code you were writing was written in such a way that you couldn't really extract it from its context. Uh, mm, it wasn't yeah. it wasn't built to be reusable, right? So what right. I would have wanted to do if I had started the project from a back end and deferred the front end to later is I would have built the the definition of the code and the allocator that creates code and the ability to walk around inside that that code structure mm-hmm. in such a way that I could test it without needing a front end and you kind of had some of that in there but extracting it out from like it, it had to integrate with the right allocators and it was right. sort of initialized in uh, a couple of like there was one spot where it was initialized in the applications initialization part and then it was initialized in another way by filling it up with example code and none of it was yeah. abstracted so i was just it seemed like the only way to put link any of my code into the core is to build like is to use the same prop like uh build basically like i can't i'd be on a separate build because of the way the code is structured and right. early on i didn't want to interrupt what because you were already working on stuff and making progress my goal was just to learn what's the state that the code base is in right now without disrupting anything so mm-hmm. uh i had to figure out how to like fit in my vm to other things and then uh you know it very quickly became like now we are having issues that are to do with the fact that it's not a lone wolf style anymore. Um, right. That is sort of where it became like, okay, maybe I want to take a pass at redesigning this code format because I don't think it, it really is well suited for the constraints of the back end. Mm-hmm. It's only really well suited for the constraints that you had been looking at, which makes perfect sense. But then 
it became like how do we pass off control of this between us when does how do we how do we start building testing things all that kind of stuff started uh to become an issue there somewhere in like two or three weeks after i started trying to figure out how to how to like just uh when I was struggling to build separately and realized that it was probably not going to happen, that's when I think I realized, like, okay, we, we got to figure out how this works. Right, totally. Yeah, I think um, the situation is also a pretty good example of how just having multiple people on a team changes the topology of the situation. Because I think we ho- we're not identical programmers, but we're like closer than if you picked a random like C programmer out of the wild or a random C++ programmer out of the wild, I would probably be further away from them than um, in style than my style is to yours. So um, we're kind of holding a lot of variables constant. And even with all those variables, the same, um, just the fact like I didn't even, it's so interesting that you say that because I didn't even think about the fact that I, I just do everything in one build all the time. But if you're trying to have this other part of the code base that's orthogonal to the real thing um, that you're using to like test stuff on the back end, yeah. which I wasn't even thinking about yet. Uh, yeah, it makes total sense that that just, that those two things are not going to compose well. Um, right. And, and I think what's, what's weird about that is I am also... I, I'm not the type to build code as a library, which is right. kind of what that's about. But it's also, I think, that you can do, like, um, levels of degree of that. So, like, yeah, uh, this is stuff that um, we had to more figure out more clearly as we've been trying to organize this. But we still aren't really able to... We still aren't really able to test the back end independently from the core. But we've been moving right. towards that. Um, mm. I mean, a lot of what's happened is we've just built out the core to make it possible for you and I to both do what we need to do on that one build. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the, that still like limits your surface area. You kind of want people to be able to make changes and exploratory, um, like have exploratory freedom of the code. Uh, but you don't necessarily want to give them that by saying like create a separate branch for a week and then deal with the merge conflicts. And right. so you... At least that's not, like, I don't prefer that style. I'd rather everything constantly be getting committed back in, and maybe you just are on a separate build that is only including the parts you're interacting with or something. Yeah. Um, uh, but, we're yeah, we're not super well set up to do that, except outside of, like, testing leaf stuff, like I was pointing out, like, string a string hash table and the operating system abstraction, parts, parts of that I could pull out and test. Right. Um, yeah. Or, like, memory allocators, I could pull those out and give them a... You, you just wrap them with malloc instead of... Or wrap them around malloc instead of the, the operating system allocators. Right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so... Uh, the 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 initial lone wolf in, like uh simplicity of just i can build everything inside this one system is really nice because you don't have to uh like contort the code that you're writing to work in other places right you can be like right. oh i need an allocator for this code structure and I need like a thing that manages it, and uh that's gonna be a lot more convenient if I can assume that it has access to this for this core frame arena thing that I have or anything else that is sort of coupled mm-hmm. in with the core structure of the editor system. And uh, this, because that makes it easier to get write it, get written, I'm not really an advocate of saying, hey, wait, is this going to work outside of this context? Uh, because that's an extra constraint. And, you know, I, I like to write something with 
with a small part part of my constraints at a time and then layer more on rather than trying to satisfy everything up front uh like in the first pass because right. it just you know that's too much to manage it kind of it's like analysis paralysis if you if you have too many constraints to satisfy at once any idea you have you'll be able to think of one of your constraints that won't work um right whereas if you already have something that's working and you're trying to layer a constraint in that's usually a little bit more manageable like as a problem solving thing how do i change this to make one more constraint satisfied mm-hmm. um right so I, I think like what what we are kind of learning and working on is like you write something and then you go hey i need to be able to point at a thing that i wrote completely integrated and say that is a critical piece that needs to i need to be able to write separate test programs for it mm-hmm. let's redo the layering for that so that you could include it somewhere else and so We've done that once now on the operating system layer, so we can independently test the operating system layer and use it in other programs uh, besides the, the one core program that we're building. Right. <clears throat> I also don't want to skip over the fact that we didn't even know early on what layers were there or like which layers would be where. It was all, um, everything was kind of a conglomerate. Like the code was separated by its logical purpose, but it wasn't um it wasn't clear we didn't establish clear boundaries to even start reasoning about layers at all yeah uh so that's like one of the things that we did early on um at the time i was looking at a lot of the quake 2 code and they right. have this namespacing thing and uh, it's it's funny because i think handmade network has developed a culture of um uh to some degree of of kind of like oh namespace is like why uh but then it kind of seemed like a useful way to start reasoning about layers in the program. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we store them as uh, really tiny, like two or three character long uh, prefixes to things with an underscore after them. So you can always search for them. Um, and it's mm-hmm. easy to see which code is poking into other code, uh, which was right. pretty beneficial. Um yeah, and even so, that that's a good point. That early on, one of the, like the part of the mess was that if one of us wrote some code, it was never clear if that code was written as a hack or not. Because when you're a lone wolf, right. you can make you can make wild you know changes to the code, and you just know that like okay, my intention is that 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 needs to move somewhere else. And and honestly, sometimes you forget that intention, and right. you end up like feeling like the code is a mess anyway, and wishing you hadn't <laughs> done that. But Right. You can at least lie to yourself, and the only person you have to blame is yourself, and so the only thing you feel is, like, I gotta try to do again, like, do do another pass for this, make it better. Mm-hmm. But it gets worse when the person who made that hack decision, which was justified from the lone wolf perspective, is someone besides you on the team, and then right. you're looking at it like, oh, why did you, I didn't, What I was trying to put that code over here, and you put it there, and, like, am I misunderstanding? Did you mean for it to do this? Because that's not what it does, and so right. you're you're now not only uh, in encountering a hack that you would have felt was wrong anyway, but you weren't even there when it got written and you created, so you didn't have the story in your head about how it was supposed to evolve later. Right. But I think is like, it's a critical thing that hacking isn't really wrong. Like it's always a good idea to try to get something up and running. Um, uh, even if it means like taking a shortcut and then going with the plan to go back and fix it. Mm-hmm. But the problem is when you're not the one who, who created the story in your head in the first place of how you would go back and fix it, you need some kind of strategy for like, oh, you're not supposed to be looking at that. Anyways, don't worry. Like I'm planning to clean it up soon. And and if, if you are all just throwing code in 
without any sense of organization that lets you know, like, oh, if it's in this namespace, then, uh, you know, Alan's working on that namespace right now and Ryan's working on this namespace. So if there's something that looks weird in Alan's namespace, that's fine. They weren't trying to contribute to what you're doing. Right. Um, so you don't need to be nervous about it. You can ask them about it or something, but you don't need to like you don't need to be like, wait, this looks wrong because you don't know what's going on in their space and you don't know they don't know what's going on in yours. So there's like a a, a way to sort of recreate that um, freedom to 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 build things in your own style within each of your uh, sections of the code base. Right. Yeah. Kind of like establishing graph cuts on the lone wolf style so that it doesn't spread too far and gets like yeah. tangled with other pieces other lone wolf explosions that are happening in other places and um, mm -hmm. just creates like massive messes. Um, the interesting thing that we have just recently addressed is that once we introduce this idea of a layer that somebody is currently working on or um, is, is actively kind of hacking around in um, or just making uh, progress on, the interesting thing is that you establish API boundaries and one benefit of being a lone wolf programmer is that you control both sides of an API boundary. Um, yeah. But then the thing that you were mentioning the other day was like, uh, it's not even clear what API needed to be made because you didn't know what the call site looked like, which would have been my code. Yeah. And I didn't know what API to write usage code for because I didn't know uh, what API would even make sense. So, um, right. That was... Kind yeah. Of interesting. Yeah. So, so I think that that gets to a, a thing that's true about writing code in general, which is that it's always about satisfying competing constraints or not competing. That makes it sound like like sometimes there is a trade off, and you're just you're picking which of two competing constraints to prefer or how much of each to prefer. Right. But a lot of times there is a way to satisfy lots more constraints than you know how to do up front. Um, right. And so what happens is like you you might start by saying like, okay, I have no idea how a, a compiler backend gets written. But what I do know is I need a call right here that says compile, I pass in a thing and the thing that comes out needs to be a, like a, a, a either a per executable or maybe the C code that I can pass to the C pro, pro compiler or whatever like work, like uh, whatever, um, whatever mechanism you were hoping to set up for your build uh, in whatever system you're making, right? You know that you need that. And so you could say like, well, yeah. I don't know anything else, but I know I have to write this API right here or something very similar to it. There has to be something that does this conversion. So a function that takes this in and returns that is not that far off, right. probably, right? Yeah. And so you know from one side, you've got that constraint and then you can sort of work out on the other side, well, if that's what's got to happen, how do you do that and work out some implementation details? And maybe along the way you realize well, if I was going to implement that, what I really needed to do was I couldn't just have this passed into me here because I want information that is, you know, a compiler might be a bad example because it's fairly straightly like input to output. But sometimes right. you start realizing like, I really wanted a cache from last frame for this stuff. And I don't have that getting passed in through the function. Do I, and now I need to like decide, do I have that get passed in and change the API or does a context persist between frames that, that knows what happened last frame or whatever, right? Right. Yeah. And and so sometimes then constraints from the implementation go back into the API and then the usage code has to adjust for that. But then it might turn out that, you know, the usage code can't adjust for that in the way you thought. And so that changes the implementation that you thought you would go for because, you know, you thought you could pass it in, but it turns out that's a hassle. So you switch to putting it in the context or vice versa, right? All kinds of these things right. happen as more and more constraints get layered into the design of the API. Um, 
what's hard is the way you get to the point where the API is good is that you understand those constraints, right? You have to hold that in your brain and be like, um, sort of, sort of, uh, you know, uh, Brett Hudson gave me this analogy originally, but I like it a lot, which is sort of solving a Sudoku puzzle where you're looking at, uh, okay, I have some numbers that are already on the grid and they limit what I can do. And then if I, you know, if I take in enough pieces of information coming in from enough angles, then I can figure out what must go in this square, right? Right, uh, yeah. But if I am not allowed to see half the grid and it's <laughs> only via seeing the whole grid that you could solve it, then how, like, you, you, you've, there's nothing you can do. Like, if, if Ryan and I had to solve a Sudoku where he could only see, you know, the left column and I could see the right column, but we could both see the middle column, it would still be massively more difficult than if we could just see the whole thing, one of us, right? Right. Um, so just owning one side of the boundary, and you, like, just me owning one side and you owning the other side is fine if all of the unsolved problems are outside of those things that that are those those points of the code that have um, that are constrained by both parts both sides right but anything in that middle section where there's a constraint coming in from my side and a constraint coming in from your side right neither of us has the whole picture on our brain and so we kind of feel deadlocked like I don't know what API you really want you don't know if any API you write is going to be reasonable and who goes first is kind of an issue. And then there's also like a thing that comes up, which is, is it really appropriate for this to be an API that's just a, you call me with a thing and I pass a thing back to you? Because there's oftentimes that what you really wanted was more like a, a new core feature to your engine right. where I could output things to that core feature and you could read from that core feature. But we wanted to make it a core feature because there are other things that are going to output to it and other ways to read from it. And right. so it didn't make sense to just make one data structure that gets passed in and out, but more needed to be like this other kind of thing. And who makes that call when nobody, when everyone is assigned a portion of the code base, who makes the call to make a new section of the code base to solve problems? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it seems like one of the stories to start solving that problem is, um, yeah, I think, I think, A, knowing what options are on the table. So either writing the usage code first and then passing that off to the other person like the the kind of um the jumping back and forth between call side and implementation side that you described uh like uh over the boundary and back is kind of how you want to write that code but the issue is now now two so now the boundary either side of the boundary is owned by a different person so it's way slower and way more labor right. intensive and and it also um hurts if you're working asynchronously um yeah which uh we are so that it just makes that process so much harder um but uh so yeah i would say like what's helped us it seems is knowing what options are on the table um so having an arbit uh, like an arbiter between the two things so I can talk about information that I know I want and then you can fill out that information and we can both kind of have an extra layer of indirection between us um, yeah. or just writing usage code, but that requires knowing constraints. So it seems like what we've been thinking about is uh, rotation of slices between people yeah. and we should probably talk about what a slice we I think you and me use that word a lot, but we should probably go mm -hmm. into what that means. Yeah, for sure. So first of all to address the issue of like the arbiter this is something we talked about in the first podcast we did too which was the idea that right. like in Forcoder, there's these different plugins from different authors who may never meet each other mm -hmm. and to make them if they have certain features that 
want to work together, usually that means that there's some system that the core is providing that arbitrates between how plugins cooperate when those when they when they both want to do similar things. Like right. uh, they both they both want to track changes to locations in a file, but you know neither one of them is like the one who owns the initial edit command or whatever and so you make an arbitrator that that solves this problem for everybody so that so that they can all have it um, right and uh it turns out that that that's kind of like just a useful thing to have whenever you're going wide right so this kind of gets into the idea of hmm. the different types of slices that we've talked about before i don't know if we've actually used exactly this term but like yeah we've also talked about how like if you look at a piece of code sometimes a type of code is like wide so each the, the, when you're looking at something wide, it's like a, a large switch statement or lots of functions, like lots of functions that are all small but easy to implement. You have mm -hmm. a lot of code, but it's each it's a bunch of small, simple pieces that just all have to be correct, right? So you can't, the downside to something wide is usually it's not a single code path. It's a lot of code paths that requires like coverage testing to get right. right. Um, but it, um, uh, each individual piece, if you've set your systems up right, are easy to write. And that's kind of the critical idea there that like, uh, it, if you're building an arbitrator, it's often because like you are going to end up doing something kind of wide where a lot of different things need to be able to do similar work. And so like, for instance, um, I think just to make this more of a concrete uh, discussion would make it easier. In the, the right. most recent example where we added an arbitrator, um, to our system, even though it had nothing to do with plugins, it was the idea that we want to get uh, compilation errors back from the back end and display them in different ways in the front end. Right. And the problem was that I didn't have any idea of like, there was no API that when you called it, you could get compilation errors back. We had like a, a build function, but we wanted a way to talk about getting compilation errors before you do the build and like getting more of them after a build. So like you might have certain things that get caught automatically and certain things that only show up after a build has taken place. And yeah. uh, there was no sort of uh, idea in place of like, where's the thing that's constantly giving you the immediate feedback of errors. There's also the problem that I wasn't ready to build to type error. Like the, the errors coming out of a type checker weren't ready and you wanted to start building the UI already. And so right. like, how do we do that? And then there's also long-term, there's gonna be a lot of sources besides just compilation errors for these kind of notifications that attach to the code. And there's gonna be more than one way to render them. And so what we're basically looking at there is those are two wide problems on either side of this information that needs to get handed off. There's a bunch right. of producers that will look kind of different, but need to do something fairly simple, which is just save some info. And there's a bunch of renderers that need to do fairly simple things. Each of them need to do a fairly simple thing of laying out that info somehow, but uh, they're all going to do it slightly differently and they're all going to be separate code paths that do it, right? Right. And so uh, the idea was just, oh, this is not a call. This is not a data type that we're missing or a an API call that we're missing. This is just a core feature that there's a, there's a set of these things that exist at any given time. And maybe later on that is the wrong arbitrator because we want to be able to control it, find out details of like tagging different sets or things. But for now that gets us up and running where you can build users of this thing and I can build users of this thing uh, without either one of us needing to really consult what the other side of this equation is doing in terms of is it really producing useful errors or not or is it going to render anything I produce? Yeah, yeah, that was the example I was thinking of um, also when considering like the arbitrating or arbit arbitrating yeah. layer um, and yeah, I, I, we haven't tried rotate. Well, I guess we've done one rotation of a slice also, um, basically adjusting the, 
adjusting the graph cuts and where you place each programmer um, along the time axis. So at each time step, you might shift boundaries around. And we've done that, I think... We kind of did it with our pseudo layers early on. Uh, like you started integrating mm-hmm. more on the format, um, and then also present. Uh, I keep using yeah. words that probably aren't clear to people, but um, yeah, uh, the thing that like the engine that renders the code um, and marks it up with navigation information and everything. That's um, right. That was something that I just did early on because it was UI related. You went to iterate on it, and then. Um, it kind of got passed back to me, and then it seems like what if it seems like one of the problems, or if you're encountering a lot of these problems with being deadlocked all the time, it might mm-hmm. work better to like slice up the problem in a different way, like have somebody. Yeah. And this is kind of what we were thinking recently, having to do with um, having a testing ground on both the front end and the back end for each person to mm-hmm. sort of be able to get immediate feedback and uh, kind of have one one slice through the entire system that maybe is more effective than just being constrained to one particular core piece of the system. Yeah, so so let's, um, I'll, I'll take a shot at trying to define what these slices that are getting mentioned a lot are. So, okay, yeah. Um, I think I think what you could think of a slice as is it's like, it's a more flexible version of what we generally call a layer. Um, yeah. Or, or like a namespace or something. So normally uh, what what it comes down to is like normally when you're creating code, you figure out how you're going to organize it. And so you might do something like say, um, okay, the operating system abstraction namespace is all the stuff that is necessary to abstract between Windows and Linux backends for the, or like operating system implementations or whatever, right? Right. Uh, so that's that layer. And then there's a layer that does my graphics, like uh, my rend- like my low level rendering. It talks to OpenGL or it talks to somebody else like Vulkan or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's a layer. Um, and then there's another layer on top of that that does like UI and it's composing different render calls that do rectangles and strings and, you know, different things like that to create UI things. So that might be a layer and so on, right? That's, that's a fairly typical thing that happens in code bases. You know that certain, certain related chunks of code are all sort of grouped together. Um, yeah. And uh, what, when we say slice, what we're basically saying is all those layers are examples of slices, right? You could say that all of the stuff related to um, uh, the operating system abstraction layer is a slice. But um, you might also say that all of the stuff related to manipulating the file system is a slice. And that might require you to look at some stuff that abstracts the file system on the operating system, and then a bunch of other stuff that does like manipulating strings to add and remove directories. Uh, maybe you have a thing that like does like caching of, or, like hashing of files to, uh, you know, cache certain types of files or something, or you you model the directory tree something. Like you might have crazy interesting stuff that you do with file systems that is cross-platform. Right. And so when you're talking about the slice of everything related to file system manipulation, that includes some stuff from the operating system abstraction, some stuff from this helper thing that does file system stuff. And uh, it's not really possible in a textual system. This is not like trying to get into the difference between text and non-text, but just to make it clear why that we're using a different word, it's not really possible in a textual system to organize your code so that you could easily view the slices in different ways, right? You couldn't easily on day one of your project, look at your operating system slice and day two, look at your file system slice 
as if they were all linearly laid out, both of them, because only one of these things can be in a one-dimensional sequence with the other things. Um, right. Like, you can only have one, two neighbors in one dimension, I guess, um, is kind of the point. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, you can't... It, it's hard to actually organize your project in such a way that you can take advantage of this idea, but... The idea of like rotating slices around is to say, um, okay, for a while there, uh, I was owning, I Alan was owning the back end of what we were working on and working on making like the build system work, and uh, Ryan's been working on the editor and trying to present errors, and we realized there's like this deadlock thing, and the way we've been solving that is that we communicate, like we get onto a conversation and come up with a plan right. and implement it every time that one of those happens and if it turns out that like there's a lot of little issues that have to bounce back and forth that might take a day of actually working together to to get the ball rolling on something new um right but the other thing is like some of these things would have been easy for either one of us to do if we'd had a fuller understanding of what the other side looked like and so a part of the idea is to you know have everybody get involved in different parts of the code base over time so you know if if um if you're having that kind of deadlock thing, one thing Ryan and I are thinking of doing and haven't tried yet is switching off him doing backend and me doing UI. We've done that kind of, as Ryan pointed out, with um, one of our pieces, we've handed it back and forth, and it's kind of evolved to be one of the more interesting pieces, um, Right. I think. So it's, yeah. that seems like a good sign. But another thing we are thinking about doing, or I think that, I think that this is what's implied by the idea of rotating slices, is to also just reimagine where the boundaries get drawn in the first place. So right. if the if the boundary between the side re, re, rendering errors and the side producing errors is unclear how to it's unclear how to structure it, then rotate your slices around so that errors become one of the slices rather than front end back end being the slices that you're assigning to people. And if one person just owns the error problem and has to work on all the generation for errors and all the representation for errors in the UI, we might get a much better error system than if we always try to solve errors by one person doing error front ends and one person doing error back ends. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's uh, slice is a pretty good word for it. I think I maybe mentioned this analogy before we had as concrete of an idea in our heads on the last podcast, but I don't I don't actually remember if I did. But um, the I always picture either a complicated three dimensional object, even though the dimension it's not clear what the dimensions of a project would even be. Like you'd probably need so many dimensions, but three dimensional object. Mm -hmm. uh, and then if you have layers in that three dimensional object, like a sandwich or something, one slice, you can imagine it's like a plane that cuts through the thing and everything that it touches along the way is like what composes the slice. So you could either slice through like just the bread of the sandwich or whatever versus part of the bread and then part of the filling um, mm -hmm. So it's not only just rotating people who are assigned to slices, but it also is rotating the orientation of the plane mm -hmm. that's slicing up this like n-dimensional uh, object that is your code base and its requirements yeah. and everything. Um, which I don't know. I we haven't done like a full change in orientation like that yet. Um, right. but that's kind of the I guess the theory about what we're thinking of trying yeah and, and it's tricky because like this is this cuts down to the text problem again but like I said there's no way to actually right. organize our code that way so right now we have everything in a namespace and so it's easy for me to tell when I'm writing code that's in my control and when I'm looking at code that's outside of my control because it'll just it'll have the namespace 
there and if the namespace is one that I am in charge of at the moment, then then I'm all good. And if it's one that I'm not in charge of, then maybe I want to leave notes behind that say, hey, I changed this or if you're available, I'll be like, hey, this is weird. What am I supposed to do in this situation to achieve this? Or can right. you add it for me because I'm lost or whatever, right? And yeah. I can tell when I'm transitioning from a state where I do need to do that to a state where I don't need to do that by the namespaces. If you try to rotate the slices, now we've lost that because there's no way with our current programming tools for us to sort of say, I I turn on the namespacing labels according to this slicing paradigm or something. Right. Right? I, yeah. I can't just say like, hey, please color all the error-related code green and all the non-error-related code red so I can tell when I'm outside of my scope. Um, right. And, and I don't know what we do about that in in the at least in the with the tools we have right now to, to address the problem. Yeah, but, yeah. I think my best guess is something like when we have those cross-cutting slices, like they're unfortunately there has to be with our current computing environment there has to be one f formal definition of a slice because as you just pointed out you can't really have multiple. Um, uh, I mean, you can try to approximate it, I guess, by like adding a bunch of stuff into namespaces, but it's just like, why go there? It's going to be a disaster because it, you have to put it in certain files and then it's just going to be crazy. But I think what maybe will work is having a personal cross-cutting slice namespace. So yeah. if I have like Ryan code, it'd be like RC underscore blah, and you'd have Alan code be AC underscore. I think those are both free, actually. Like we don't have yeah. namespaces like that, but, um, and then those would be the, te like the testing ground. We're thinking of like doing editor iterations independently. So, yeah. uh, that would be like testing ground for stuff. I don't know if this is a more general principle or if it just works in our case, but that'd be the testing ground. You can commit those back to, um, if, if it turns out that some of the stuff that is done in there seems like it would be good in a more formal layer setup then maybe you commit those back to the formal layers or something right right so yeah. i i think that i i agree that that helps address the problem because of the fact that it lets you silo off the things you are experimenting with from other things people are doing so that right you can like the thing i had initially was like oh i need to be able to mess around with and test this back end but there's no way to really pull out stuff from the core that i need to test with so i'm a little bit blocked on that right and now it would be like, well, you don't need to pull it out from the core. You just have your own core, which is, you know, another way to deal with right. this problem that that everything we build, we kind of want to build it in a way where it integrates easily with the system. Doing the extra work to make it reusable costs a lot. And while it would have the benefit that you could add someone else to the team, it it also slows down you know everyone that the, that's on the team if they have to write everything that way. Right. And it also <laughs> It also is like a lossy thing. You can't just do that with like zero loss in the quality of the thing out the other end. You have to add in like, oh, override the allocator for this library because there was no way to do it in place. And, right. you know, now the thing that used to be like a nice, simple, like you pack it all into a linear allocator and then free it all at once. Now you have to go and pepper and free calls everywhere because you don't know if the allocator that they're passing to you is a linear allocator or not or all those kinds of things, right? So yeah. it, you, it, it necessarily degrades the quality when you try to make a piece of code reusable because you're now favoring a constraint other than like performance and simplicity. You're also favoring the constraint of reusability to some degree and they do start to compete when there's enough of those constraints, right? Um, right. 
So while that's an option and sometimes it's the right thing to do, um, I think there's also kind of this thing we want to try, which is like you were saying, giving each person their own sort of piece of the core where they can build things in a slightly different way. They can try an experiment that won't break anyone else's state because it's only their build, but it's also it also includes the main core that everyone is including. Um, that right. way, when things get promoted to core, everyone can take advantage of them and... Uh, you don't have to complicate the core code that uh, the way it gets written, but then your local code can do extra work to sort of add in whatever reusability things you needed or wrap them in ways you needed or whatever, like uh, add in, uh, write, do a rewrite that is slightly different and see how it works out and stuff like that. Um, uh, yeah. The thing I'm not sure about is even if we do that, um, it's still a little bit weird because anything that is committed to core, like for instance, the entire idea of an error slice, that involves right now stuff that isn't picked out from core. And if we don't include right. that in core in any way, then everyone has to write their own error slice thing until we pick one for core. And once we do pick one for core, it still has the problem that if you ever slice it in any way other than the way you layered it, where right. layers are like the static thing that's in the namespace system, that's strictly everything is in one layer and not any other like layers. Um, right so that they can't be cross-cutting, um, then you don't have any way to pass off, like, ownership of errors now, you know, is Ryan's for today, but tomorrow Alan is taking all of backend, so you need to be done with error or whatever, right? Right, like, yeah. There's no way to organize that in text, so it's kind of tricky to do teamwork just because of that, and I I don't know, like, even if we do the stuff that we're planning to do for siloing, you still have to kind of deal with the constraint that stuff in the core just doesn't have, isn't siloed anymore. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think by by working alongside in this, uh, I guess you're, if you imagine the two slices, you imagine the layers, which are, yeah, the solidified slices, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. And then somebody's own siloed version of a core is like uh, it, perpendicular to that. Um, as a result, all the stuff you have to touch, you kind of also have to be familiar with. And yeah, I mean, the, and then you open the risk of uh who yeah who who owns the who owns pieces of the core for what time period um presumably it's beneficial in that more people get exposure to more pieces of the actual core yeah um so i don't know it'll be interesting to try it out um uh one yeah. interesting benefit of the slices that i found was i think it made it clearer when explicitly moving code around to even just within like mm. a textual system, you have code. There was one thing that I had to move out of like the uh, formalized edit layer into a higher level layer, um, which was like the range closure system that right. you had written before. And I think I don't know if it's purely a visual thing. Maybe it's just my the way my brain has to like approach or view the problem or something. But it was useful to uh, take all of the code or go incrementally visit all the code within the layer that I needed to move out of the layer and then change which namespace it was in just um, by literally changing the name or what things referenced or something. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously you get a bunch of errors because everything everything is talking about the old thing that you just renamed. So you have to go and fix those up. Um, so I used like an intermediate layer name like XX underscore or something. Mm -hmm. And then I... So after that, then it was visually clear. I didn't have to keep all the state in my head of like which code is getting moved where and like where is it going and where is it coming from. 
I could just visually see that, no, like this code was marked off as moving and needing to transition. And then I can move that. So it was like, a f how many steps? Three step process. It was like, change the namespace, um, fix all the errors, maybe four steps, move the code in terms of where it's actually stored. And then uh, change the namespace again, which requires merging with similar concepts that aren't orthogonal in the destination namespace. Um, yeah. And I don't know, ha having that as a formalized system made it easier to reason about, I guess. Uh, and conceptualizing things as moving between layers was kind of helpful. Um, but yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it's locked layers and not slices, but... Yeah, so... Um... Yeah, totally. I, I don't know that there's much you can do. Like, obviously, being conscious of these problems helps because I, I think when we decided to do this podcast, there was one, like, main point I wanted to make sure got in there somewhere. So I think now's a good time for me to, to okay. make it, which is yeah. Um, ultimately, working on a team isn't that different from working by yourself, except that it's a new problem, right? But all the same problem-solving skills that I think I developed by being a lone wolf programmer... I can still bring to the table now. And that doesn't just mean uh, my problem solving skills for writing code, because now what I have to do is I have to think about like, um, I have to think about my problem solving skills for maintenance problems in a new way. And it's right. like a new set of problems, but all of the, all of the principles of problem solving remain constant uh, during that transition. Like uh, when I was a lone wolf programmer, I would choose how to organize my code so that it would have properties like, okay, some parts of the fork code or code base are going to the custom layer that everyone is going to see. Uh, right. So those are going to go into this folder. These parts of the code base are going to go into this folder so that they're completely separated from the ones that will, people will see. And that was just helpful, not because of like, I would get confused if they were mixed or something, but because I needed to make a packaging script that would pull out the right files. And that was the most important concern to make that easy because I didn't want to have like, oh, I shipped a build and I forgot one of the in files or I shipped a bunch of files I didn't mean to. Right. Having them in separate folders and just saying this folder gets shipped, that folder doesn't made that super easy. And so yeah, that constraint sense. overrided any other concept of like, well, these are sort of fundamental data types. So maybe they should go with other fundamental data types. It's like, no, the, the, the overriding data, the, the overriding concern took precedent and that's how I organized things. And right. that sort of attitude of like, you look at uh, what's going on on your team and you do problem solving isn't really different. Like you, you kind of want to be able to bring the exact same attitude to what you do to organize your code for yourself to what you do for a team. You just want to make sure that you're now being conscious of the fact that to really get the most out of your team, you want to know what each member of your team is good at. You want to know, right. um, you want to know like how much time they are expecting to put in, like what are they comfortable with putting in on a given week? And like, are you doing something that prevents them from working? Are you expecting, are you deadlocking because you expect them to work twice as much as they are going to this week? And so you needed to come up with a different system where you could keep doing what you were planning to do. Like, I think it makes a lot right. more sense to just look at your code base the same way you would as a normal, as a programmer by yourself, but to do it as a team and to say, how do we organize things so that we each can contribute the thing we are here to contribute um, right. without, you know, uh, creating any issues. And it's, there's now issues that have a lot more to do with like um, synchronization than before, but that's still just problem solving at the end of the day. How do you organize? What, what is the overriding concern you need to address to make this thing not a problem for each problem you deal with? And, you know, I, I think if you, if you, um, 
think of like dealing with other people as this completely other domain, it could be pretty easy to think that you could never transition to working on a team. But I think if you look at it more like it's, it's, you know, it's an opportunity to solve a different class of problems, but it's still the same kind of problem solving thing that at least for me, that clears up a lot. Some of the like apprehension I might have initially about thinking about working on a team. Yeah. That's super interesting. Um, to compare it to problem solving seems pretty accurate because dealing with synchronization problems, like you can imagine if you're trying to write a multi-threaded thing, you're trying to minimize synchronization to the best of your ability so that different threads aren't constantly having to like wait on each other and stuff. And that's kind of an identical problem, except Mm -hmm. instead of dealing with threads of execution, you're dealing with um, uh, like, uh, well, we've been using the term meat brain threads (laughs) of Mm execution, like meat brains except uh, the threads of execution that are running on them um, uh, and you don't control all the meat brain or the, or no, no, sorry, not meat brain, meat computer, meat. uh, Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't control the meat computers. um, So uh, how do you organize the work such that they have to communicate as little as possible? Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's pretty interesting. Um, And it's also a good point that in order to work effectively on a team, it seems like we've been more effective because we've understood what role the team what or not role necessarily but what the style of each piece of the team is um yeah because we the i guess the workflow of, de- of development for the project has been i kind of go in and do a bunch of fast iteration and uh you know I'll say occasionally to give myself the benefit of the of the doubt, but uh, you know, make a mess of things, and then um, you're kind of like you like go through that code, and you're like, wait, why did you do this? And then you're always much better at like boiling it down to something that's like far fewer special cases, uh, much simpler code paths, and kind of satisfies right. all the constraints at once, uh, like layering those constraints on after we've discovered them. Um, yeah, I think that the knowing the characteristics. So for one thing, it's it's been pretty interesting as we're working to try to figure out how to talk about and not necessarily literally measure, but like to, to point to like, here's the 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 axis along which we are different. Right. And if we knew how to measure it, we would expect to find a low value on you'd be on this side of the spectrum and I'd be on that side for whatever, whichever one of those is a large or small number, if they go positive, it doesn't make any difference. But the point is, we know they would be diff- they'd be at some distance from each other on that axis. Right. Um, uh, and to an extent, that's interesting, but I don't know to what level that's useful because we've only really been we only got three people there's you me and one other person that we're working with um and the the uh like the amount of experience we each have with like how many ways can programmers vary is probably pretty small because i think we're all fairly like-minded on the team right now in terms of a lot of factors are similar yeah um so it's not really easy to say that you could like I, i have no idea if you could or if um, ever make like a codification of like here's how you classify a programmer but it is possible to say like look if you learn the programmers that you're working with and what they're what they're good at what they like to do um uh what like what what is is i don't know how to say it except like what is the thing that they are there to contribute right, right? like yeah I, when i was working on on pinky by myself the thing i couldn't do was get like just a good like reasonable 
break-in that like got me from I have nothing to I have like a picture of what this thing looks like when it's working um right uh you know I like you said I like I like to solve the kinds of problems where I'm looking at something and figuring out okay if that's the what the constraint set is here's how we layer them in and make a uh, a solution that will be easy to work with for all of these different constraints right the person yeah. who needs to solve that problem will be able to do it because we set things up like this and the person who needs to solve that problem will be able to do it because we set things up like this and um the problem with that is is sort of like i was saying before when you're laying around too many constraints at the same time you analysis paralysis and especially for right. writing this kind of thing where there's a, necess a necessity to do a lot of exploratory work because we're inventing a new way to store code and uh uh, we're experimenting with the UIs for that and stuff. We're, 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 a lot of what we're doing is discovery, not just implementation. And so yeah. it, it isn't possible for me to just show up and say, let's start layering constraints in because I don't know which constraints are good and I have no way to rapidly check what direction I want to go in because I'm not good at that part of it. So you kicked off the process and that's how it tends to work is that you are the person who kicks off a thing especially when that thing requires more new ideas than uh something else like i started with the back end mostly because we're not trying to do anything ambitious with the back end it's just like right. any other compiler so i i kind of have some idea of like okay if those given what i already know about compilers which might not be a lot but it's enough that i feel like i can get started and not make mistakes that are the kind like that you would make those mistakes and it wouldn't actually be a mistake but for me i can't uh get over the fact that like i see a constraint that i'm not satisfying and so i can't do it yeah uh, but with the back end that's not an issue right and so knowing where each person fits is nice and knowing how um like and you don't i i think we're a small team so i don't know if you need everyone to do that but like i feel like it'd be hard to have a team that functions well if each person doesn't know what the other people on the team are really good at doing it right you're going back to the analogy of each meat computer being like one thread in the system and they're each sort of they have a mutex that holds the stuff that they're working on and they have to do communication with other threads to synchronize when when they do start crossing the outside of that portion that they own um yeah looking at it from that analogy another way to like to flavor that analogy just a bit more is to imagine that the computer that is made up of all these independent like processors that are running parallel threads um yeah is that each of them have a, has a very different power curve right like one of them is a gpu one of them is like a uh a, a core like a main cpu processor maybe one of them is you know actually a, a um like a cloud computing thing that you're sending things to like kick off long like long slow ping large throughput things and, you know there's all these different variations of what a cpu might be like right um in terms yeah. of you know those kinds of variables and a programmer is like that except that i think there's even more variables involved like are they a high throughput person where they get a lot done yeah but they need to be working on lots of different things at the same time to make that happen or are they somebody who likes to look at one very small problem and do an excellent job at that after a week of work on it uh, that's one way a programmer could be different from another programmer. Are they the kind of person who does exploratory work? Are they the kind of person who does like cleanup and and um, like architectural soundness work? Uh, do they do right. API stuff or do they do implementation stuff? Like, um, yeah, are they better at like are they somebody you would hand off the problem of writing a build script or do, is are they somebody who can never ever deal with anything outside of C? Like they can't handle right. scripting, right? I'm somewhere on that spectrum where I can barely handle scripting, but I bet a lot of programmers are 
farther along where they they'd have no problem being like i'm gonna see if a make file or python works better and they'd spend a day on it and feel good about it and i couldn't so yeah you have to know what the what the those power cons like the power curve of each of your processors is so that you can kind of distribute the workload to the place where it is most effective if you want to be like if you want to function as a team in a reasonable way right and i think the tasks aren't even necessarily i don't know i hear i guess in the industry people tend to refer to tasks that need to be completed as features but i don't actually think that's a good way to consider units of work um mm. because it seems like multiple all slices within the project so far have needed different levels of different process like meat processor work um, where there's an exploratory phase and then a cleanup. Sometimes that varies, obviously, because obviously there's no uh, exploratory phase, at least to as great of an extent um, in the backend stuff. Uh, but with present, we've needed to both iterate on it. And then, so I think the rotation of slices is important, is another way to say it, yeah. I guess, because uh, one person's strengths will mean more at certain times than other people's strengths. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's another way to think about it is sort of if you imagine this is probably a bad analogy because I'm making it up off the top of my head. Okay. But if you imagine that like what each person brings to the table is a certain amount of like the flavor of stuff they generate and the flavor of stuff they filter. So um uh in kind of like a selection system sort of way. So there's a bunch of stuff getting added and then you pick which of those things were good ideas and throw out the bad ideas and then you add more stuff and do that process again. And so each person will think to add new stuff in and see how it looks and other people will know which things like and each person will have a different idea of why certain things are bad and filter those things out right, right. and so you might add a bunch of stuff and you rightly point out that three things are good that i would have never thought of but you add in three other things that i can point out why they're bad yeah and so then when i take over i'll be like i'll filter those out but i looking at what things you did that i filtered out i have replacements for them because i filtered them out so many times in other projects that i also have figured out what I want to generate when I'm filtering those ideas out and saying, no, the right way to do this is going to be to switch to this. Um, and yeah. so then I can put those in there. But now you have a system that has a feature you would have never thought to do. And you can probably also look at what I just did and go, okay, all of that was good except this one thing you did. I'm filtering that out because that's going to have this problem. And I wouldn't have realized that. And so even though, yes, generally I'm the person who does more filtering and you're the person who does more generating, I think it's also impossible to like, to, to minimize the extent to which we all have slightly different uh, degrees of each pop, pop power in our brain. So like even if we had someone on the team who was really good at optimizing code, there might be one problem where they hand it off to me or you or anyone else and they, that person is able to look at it and go, oh, you did all this work, but I can see that if you just unroll this loop this way, we could actually like cut down another you know five cycles per you know head like oh love over uh overhead or whatever right, right. like yeah uh, it's just because you're one thing happens to click for a person sometimes and so passing a problem around tends to allow it to get the best of what each person can contribute this is also sort of the opposite i think like that might sound like oh you have too many cooks in the kitchen but i think that's <laughs> the opposite because there's only one cook in the kitchen at each given time right and so the the way we tend to make things worse is if we all sit down and try to build something at the same time together right then yeah then it's like the too many constraints everything that gets generated it triggers someone else's filter mechanism and so the only time to get something past someone else's filter mechanism is when you see the hole that someone else has created and go, oh, that is pretty good. Now that I, if you can couple that with that and that idea, 
now I don't want to filter it because I see why it fits, but I could improve it for you because I have an idea on how to do that or something, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, I think in general, passing things around, good, designed by committee, bad. Right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, if you're all in the same room, all doing your own filtering at the same time, you're just going to get the least... Like, there's no... First of all, there's no way to prove that any of the filters of other people are correct at any instant in time. So one person's filter might be misfiring and, like, is not filtering out something that should be filtered. And, you know, who knows? So you're just going to have a filter that's filtering too much out, and then you're going to get a very low bandwidth stream of good output from the generation to the to the filter generation. It also also makes a lot more sense to do the passing things around because... um... It's sort of in the same way that it makes a lot more sense to implement anything, even if it's not a very good version, and then improve it, than to just try to make the best thing up front. Yeah. Uh, because uh, even if you do the passing things around, and it turns out that somebody like somebody contributes their idea, and the whole thing is just worse, I think it, it, hopefully everyone on the team is able to sort of um, be dispassionate about, like, there's no such thing as like somebody's experiments not being worth it because it didn't pan out. It's just like right. that. We tried that direction and now we're going to roll back to the other one because we're trying to stay, we're trying to avoid making steps in directions that take away from the quality. And if everyone's like being reasonable, which, you know, I guess it's a part of teamwork we haven't talked about is, is hopefully everyone's, you know, got everyone's mentally and emotionally adjusted to what's important and what's not to a good degree. So that right. there's not a whole lot of like, yeah, um, you don't. I, I don't know how I would deal with that part of teamwork when there's somebody who wants their code in, even though it's worse because they feel bad if it's not. I, I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But if you're past that kind of problem and you're just looking at it from a rational perspective, I think everyone on our team would much prefer that, like, if they made a contribution that that um, regressed the quality in a in a way that we'd already agreed to measure things by. Then we would all agree, just like, okay, let's undo that. Let's go with what we already had and somebody else take a pass, right? Right, um, yeah. In fact, that has kind of happened because the early on when I was deadlocked and we hadn't solved some of these problems, I wrote a separate editor that was not like as fully featured as the one you had, but I was just trying to iterate on a couple of key ideas that I didn't know how to do in, inside of your system without breaking your system. So I, right. I bubbled off into a separate little thing, worked on it, contribute some ideas back. Some of those ideas I contributed back, I ended up saying that was a mistake, we should go back to what you were doing. And other ones, mm-hmm. it was clearly an improvement. But like, um, I, I wish I could remember the specifics now to give a concrete example of what that looks like. But it, it sort of was something like, uh, we had these ideas of inserts and deletes and they originally, it was really hard to figure out like, when is it illegal to insert something and delete something? And how do you, like, sometimes you need to patch it up with a null node and sometimes you don't. And how do you tell right. and what are the, and then and I came up with this idea of like, okay, this all kind of boils down to some like this case and that case, and this case you do, and that case you don't do the patch up, and we can build everything with those constraints, and it'll be fine. Yeah. And then I also added in some stuff of like, here are the helpers I recommend we use, and it turned out that those helpers were garbage, and that there was a much simpler way to do it. Yeah. Um, but the like the part I'm good at isn't usually like the the detailed oriented part of writing like. The detail-oriented part of writing a good API is often not the thing I contribute. It's the like, oh, looking at all the constraints we need to satisfy, this is the core design decision we need to make. And so that part I contributed, and luckily it worked out. Um, yeah. And yeah, everything else we kind of have evolved past by doing more rounds of contributing ideas and filtering again. Right, for sure. And I think implicit in all of this is that uh, we've discussed... 
I guess we've largely focused in this episode of on the problems, like the things that go wrong, and that you should have tech or and te- techniques to approach those problems. Um, yeah. But ideally, if you orient all the filters properly and rotate things around um, in the best way, you compound the good, like you compound the generated good stuff from each filter, and yeah. more good things happen. Um, because when you're working on a lone wolf project, you are kind of just having to do everything yourself and um, implicit in the idea that different programmers are better at different styles of work if you just have a lone wolf project you'll just be worse at certain things if you don't like iterate yeah. on them all the time and then that part of your project will just be um, less good for that reason maybe it didn't matter for the project who knows but I think what you're saying it gets into something that I we haven't actually discussed this so this is not something we privately have agreed upon so it might be an interesting thing to, to hash out now and see, okay. and see yeah. what you think about this idea but mm-hmm. one thing that I kind of intuitively sense but I haven't got any way to test right now is that a part of the reason why our teamwork has worked is because everyone on our team is roughly at the same level I mean we all have we've already discussed mm-hmm. how there are big differences between us I'm good at this and you're good at that but there was never like a thing where one of us was struggling with pointers while while the other one was talking about generating instructions and marking the pages executable at you know so that they could run right. like code on the fly or something right it's not like crazy differences of depth of understanding right. between any of us and i think that that's pretty important um yeah uh, for the kind of style of teamwork we're talking about like if you're going to have someone who's way senior, more senior than someone else then you kind of want more like a management structure probably and you're mentoring that person to learn things and we've never really explicitly had like this person's in charge and you're helping the other people to learn while implementing this stuff right it's more just like we all have the thing we're bringing to the table and we defer to each other when we know we're gonna when, when we know that that person is probably better at this type of problem we ask them to take it when uh when we feel like we've done as good as we can, we try to, we're trying to start doing this rotating thing more often. Um, I think all of that style is good. And if you're working with people roughly on, in your range, not only will it make the product better, but I think you'll actually find you learn a lot faster because you're, you're now being challenged along axes you weren't challenged when you were a lone wolf. And so you, yeah. I think you and I have both agreed on this part, which is that for whatever reason, uh, working on this project, the nature of the project and the nature of the teamwork between us mm-hmm. uh, on the team has led to us learning a lot very quickly compared to when we worked on our solo projects. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, I think um, I so I agree. I agree with the point for sure. Uh, I I would assume that on a team with a senior and uh, mentoring like a junior, I would assume that the senior is going to learn less. So it seems like there's like this balancing mechanism or something that results in more education for each individual when they're communicating with people who are good at different things. I mean, in the case of our team, for example, um, you shipped for coder and you had a much better exposure to a lot of the, uh, a lot of the architectural problems that comes with shipping things. And, um, and your exposure with that just led you to come to much more mature, and developed conclusions than I could have with my projects. Cause I never, um, I don't, I, I'm trying to think if, if I could ever consider one of my projects to be quote unquote shipped, but definitely not to the level of like, uh, four coder. Um, I see. So, um, obviously you get, you get things in shape for demos and stuff like that, but four coders like on however many people's computers right now as their editor of choice. So right. it's definitely a different problem. And, 
similarly, I was thinking about this earlier with Forcoder, the boundary between the core and custom layers is kind of the blind half Sudoku puzzle problem. So mm-hmm. um, it's probably like the your iterations there probably helped you a lot with that. And then um, with me not having been exposed to that uh, and then seeing like the way you approach things in that domain has been like way more helpful to me because then I have to like overlay that with my own idea of the constraints of the problem. Right. Um, so yeah, there's probably some compounding positive educational benefit when you're dealing with uh, different people who are better at different things and you have to compose all their experience. Um, and if you do that successfully, you learn more. And in the case of a senior and a junior, that's not really the situation. Um, and, and, and I think this is why it's great to have two people like, or any number of people that you can, as long as you're like, cause the other problem is if your team grows to a certain extent, you have like an N squared communication matrix that you have to manage. Right. Yeah. And so like, as N grows, your team becomes, you're like your non-managed team structure will probably start to break down. But with three of us, we can kind of all, the number of links is three and it's a very manageable um graph for us to communicate along right Um, yeah so uh what's super interesting is when everyone's sort of roughly at a similar level of understanding of depth at least i don't exactly how to describe it because it's also helpful that they are good at certain things that you're bad at but at the same time you just want like a baseline of the fundamentals that you don't have to mentor them on right yeah um uh and uh What's super interesting about being in that situation is that not only did it help us all get better by looking at what each other was doing, but it also it like um, it led to un- the creation of new ideas that was sort of the best of both sides of the coin. So yeah. the specific example I mean of that, and this is also threatening to get more into an off-topic thing that uh, isn't really about teamwork, but okay. I think it's a good example of why like you're trying to look for examples of why teamwork is good, uh, a good thing to try out. And I think that along these lines of coming up with new ideas is, you know, I, I agree with your analysis of what I learned from Forcoder being a big part of what I contributed on the Dion team of like understanding how, well, things like the, the level of importance of testability or like uh, which things need to be organized well so that they, they can be shipped in different platforms. Right. Um, yeah. you know, uh, long-term maintenance, the cost of long-term maintenance of things, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, what you brought to the table that I didn't have was that you spent way more time than me thinking about and working on game engines, which mm-hmm. starts off as sounding like it's not really the same level of thing, but I think it is. A, it, it turns out to be just as important because everything that you took from a game engine was like, okay, first of all, the idea of entity systems, which you'd iterated on a lot, so you had a lot of opinions coming in yeah. of what to do, what's good about an entity system, how to build one, and that was sort of the day one thing that Dion was, was just an entity system for code they got up and running. Right. Um, uh, like, right away. Um, mm. And then there was also, like, you had built the data desk tool, which was a much more sophisticated way of metaprogramming than I had ever uh, found, which I think also mm. came from the fact that you were doing in a game, you have lots of different systems that you have to make work. And Forcoder is actually fairly simple when you look at it from the perspective of what are the data types that it manipulates. Like it manipulates giant buffers, 
what else? Right. Maybe strings of cursors attached to giant buffers, memory allocators, like interesting. In yeah. Graph like font and F font atlas. Like yeah. It, all, besides giant buffers of text, there's <laughs> nothing like parses, right? Like yeah. that's kind of unique. But but in a game, you have like levels and you have scripts with dialogue and you have cutscene information and you have right. like uh, you have assets getting pulled in for sound and for video or like or for graphics and you know those can be different things and shape. You have way more like breadth of it's almost it's almost like Forbidden is a lot deeper. If I was going to use the wide versus deep thing again, Forbidden yeah. is a slightly deeper product than the Melodist, for instance, which is a game engine or it's based on a game engine that it goes much wider in terms of the number of things it has to handle. That's interesting. Which I think forced you to get better at um, metaprogramming. And of course, when you first came in, you had this metaprogramming system where you could build structs and then you could generate lots of complicated code off of them. Yeah. And I looked at that and was like, wow, this is such a sophisticated metaprogramming system, but <laughs> we need to tweak it and switch over to like, let's generate simple code from it, um, which was great because I was been generating stuff like that more and more often as I had been converging on like the maintenance cost of complicated code generation is too high. Yeah. But I hadn't really figured out like a good way to do the metaprogramming for a wide range of things. Each of my metaprograms was like a specialized thing to that case. And you had been dealing with so many special case, like you had you had already to solve the problem of I have lots of different kinds of things to metaprogram and you did a better job of that than I ever did. Um, and the combination of those two ideas led to what we do now, which is like this table driven stuff everywhere yeah. off of really simple parses of really simple code. And so the whole thing feels way better yeah. than anything I've had to work with previously. Yeah, totally. That's that's super interesting. I like that analysis because um I noticed coming out of uh like preparing the melodist for last year's uh handmade Seattle thing, I I was still on the road of doing like super complicated code generation where um not only was I generating code for many different things, I was also having to go I was I was because the code I was generating was complicated, the code also had to be very deep. Um, to do uh -huh. the generation and the code that was generated was also deep and it was like uh, not only a nightmare to write that code the first time uh, it was also a nightmare to maintain it and mm -hmm. um, and continue uh, continuing to add constraints to it just completely broke it uh, I had to rewrite things um, like many times to add in a new constraint and it was always like yeah. each implementation is more complicated than the last one Um but your iteration of making everything simple and table driven uh, was pre like pretty dramatically showed me like night and day like here's what you get if you try to go wide and deep uh, versus here's just going wide and see mm -hmm. and metaprogramming is obviously a really useful tool to uh, make the process of going wide easier so um, yeah. that was like super helpful to see so um, and and what what's really good I think is like um, this is like uh, these terms of wide and deep have developed because we need to communicate. So this is another example of how if you work on a team you'll end up learning stuff because right yeah I had an intuitive sense for wide and deep but now we talk about it all the time and uh, yeah. so uh, specifically to be specific about what got better about the the metaprogramming thing is the metaprogramming like you said is for managing a wide set of things right but generally the reason you couldn't just manage that wide set of things in your code is because you also want to do deep things with each of them right um like you wanted for instance in the melodist i think to like build a ui that was specialized to the entity you're looking at so if it has these fields it has those ui elements to match right yeah um 
And that's a perfectly reasonable thing to want, but handwriting the UI for each entity that needed to make sure it didn't forget anything that was in that entity would be super error prone. So the idea is, well, I'll describe the entities with meta program, meta code that's like the, the data desk script, yep. and then I'll generate it with one big generator. But the problem is that that, that one big generator over time ends up becoming the wide and deep at the same time. Right. And yeah. the the thing we've kind of learned uh, by looking at that thing together is that that I never got good at wide problems like the, the data desk parsing part. And yeah. then what I contributed, however, was the idea of going deep by make going doing this table driven technique, right? You generate tables and then you go deep once. You have one function that reads and writes those tables rather than deep code generators that generate deep stuff that's hard to deep there's different stages of debugging it's like right. no put all the problematic debugging stuff on one deep function that reads these tables and yeah now you've now you've got a, a wide thing and a deep thing but not a wide times deep thing right which was the thing you were trying to avoid in the first place right yeah yeah and it's also this is partially just practical concerns of c but uh generating deep code with like a data desk style metaprogramming system is kind of a nightmare too, because you have to like fprintf stuff if you want to like put it into a code file. So you're kind of writing deep code in this really uh, bizarre way. And yeah. of course you can't see exactly what's gonna be generated. So you have to look at the generated file all the time. And, and then yeah, you either have to debug the generator or debug the actual code that was generated. Um, you do get the benefit that like, if you fix a bug in the generator, you're fixing a bug across all code paths that were generated from it yeah but um there's just so many it's just yeah wide times deep is is not no good um so mm -hmm. um yeah that was that was a but, super useful iteration yeah. uh on yep, yep, yep. all that stuff yeah so that was not quite on the topic of teamwork but it, i I, right. I think it's it's definitely the best example that i think we've got of yeah of uh just things clicking way better because you're bouncing ideas off of somebody else who is, you know, roughly at your level, but challenges you on the things you haven't gotten good at yet. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know how to, I, like, I've been thinking about that for a long time since we started doing it. And I don't really know how to replace that. Like, I think if you're a lone wolf programmer, you probably are going to have a better time with your project until you get comfortable with a team, but you're definitely missing out on, on a lot of that stuff too. Yeah, totally. Yeah, there, there, there seem to be a lot of benefits. I mean, uh, we've been... So this project is... Uh, we did the first podcast in March, I believe. So it's been about seven months at this point. Mm -hmm. And um, we get a lot of comments from people who are saying, like, wow, I can't believe you got that much done in that amount of time. And I think it's because... I think partially it's just we got lucky with orienting the work properly. Um, yeah. And I think we're both, like, high-code output programmers um so right. i think we, we no one on our team is really the optimizer we all right. write lots of decent code instead of really good code anywhere right yeah um so i think i don't know that there's a million factors that contribute to the productivity but i think uh it, it's night and day compared to lone wolf projects so definitely a good mm -hmm. thing to to think about if you're you know if you're in the community doing a uh, handmade project consider consider teaming up might might go well for you yeah um yeah so i don't know if there's anything else we wanted to hit on this topic yeah i think that the, i mean the, i think that i feel like we've hit a good like number of points I, I think you know you could easily do a whole second talk on it if we wanted to like 
pick apart a specific thing more. But right. I think in terms of sweeping things that, especially if I had to say, like, looking at the Handmade Network's Lone Wolf, uh, like, leaning. Right. And say, have have I done my best to give you reasons to think that the, it's an addressable problem and that it's worth addressing? Then I think I've given you the, the broad sweeping things that I know about so far. Right. Um, I'd also, maybe, maybe this should have gone at the beginning of the podcast, but we've only been doing this for seven months. So we're nowhere near <laughs> experts to actually making a team work. Right team work well and we we're already very enthusiastic about it so i th- i think it's maybe it's yeah. not a solved problem but the handmade com- community in general maybe ought to figure out more about how to solve the teamwork problem for the handmade philosophy right yeah totally yeah and i think uh the handmade philosophy and teams and th- like thinking critically about forming a team is it is also kind of a handmade style problem because you're having to think about the reality of your problem Except, yeah, mm-hmm. instead of silicon computers, you're talking about meat computers and organizing work and uh, distributing it distributing it properly. And um, it is just another aspect of reality that you have to deal with when you're working on a project. So um, it seems like an important problem for the community to, to address. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, um Cool. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming on the podcast for a second time, Alan. Um, mm-hmm. It's been good talking to you about this. I think, yeah, I, I, I think a lot of our thoughts aren't quite formalized yet, but uh, hopefully that gave people a pretty good overview of some of the recurring themes or ideas that have come up within our our teamwork. So, um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for thanks for coming on again, Alan, and uh, see everybody in the next episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Handmade Network podcast. You can join us in making software by hand by going to handmade.network. You can also email in questions or topics for the podcast to podcast at handmade.network. Hope to see you next time.